Hey everybody, Brian McClanahan here. Are you looking for a great educational website? Then go to McClanahanAcademy.com. That's McClanahanAcademy.com. Enroll free of charge. Get a free class, 10 Myths of American History when you do enroll. Look, I've got awesome classes there. Classes on the Constitution, classes on the Civil War, classes on secession, classes on American history. A whole slew of great stuff just waiting for you. Go to McClanahanAcademy.com, enroll, and get a real history education. How do we discuss important Americans shorn from ideology? We'll talk about that on this episode of The Brian McClanahan Show. It's time to think locally and act locally. Welcome to The Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to The Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to have you back on the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter. Like my Facebook page and subscribe to my YouTube page where you can watch this podcast. Find all those social media accounts on my webpage, brianmcclanahan.com. That's B-R-I-O-N, mcclanahan.com. While you're there, give me that email address. I'll give you a free ebook, Forgotten Founders, free audiobook of the same title, read by yours truly. Support the show by going to mcclanahanacademy.com. Use that coupon code WASHINGTON on reading George Washington. Get $70 off in July of 2023. It's my newest class in July of 2023. It's an awesome class, 25 lectures on the real George Washington in his own words, which is what makes it really awesome. So if you want to understand George Washington and you can't understand America without understanding George Washington, you want to pick up that class. And this is the lowest price you'll ever get it. So use the coupon code WASHINGTON, reading George Washington at mclanahanacademy.com. Of course, you can also support the show by buying many other classes there. You can click on the support tab at brianmcclanahan.com, throw a few pennies my way. Go to Spotify for podcasters, do the same thing. Or, of course, click on the super thanks button under this video if you're watching on YouTube. But as always, rate, view, and subscribe to the podcast. Let people know you love it. Give it the five-star review. Leave a text review wherever you can. Comment on YouTube for the algorithm. That does help get more eyes and ears on the show. And let's talk about a listener-generated episode today. So the last couple of days, we've talked about the left and what they're doing to the historical profession. But it's not just the left. It's not just progressives. You see, we've had this attack on historic preservation. They don't really want preservation. They want activism. We've questioned aloud why you can't criticize the 1619 Project. Well, because you can't get a job. But probably the most dangerous thing that's happened to American conservatives is not from the left. These are things you expect. For years, you expect these things. You expect the left to do what they do with American history and, of course, uh, the founding generation and others. What we don't expect is, or we did not expect, particularly in the 1950s, when Russell Kirk wrote uh, The Conservative Mind, was that the right was going to adopt the very same positions as the left. Now, this is not something that um, was necessarily new, but the way that the right did it, we have to go back to Harry Jaffa, the way the right did it, and what they were trying to do beginning really in the 1970s with equality as conservative, was to disarm this perception of the right of being you know, these bad guys who just were concerned about you know, abusing people and saying mean, nasty things to people and doing things that were uh, what we considered to be um, disgusting at the time. Or, you know, these, these are the kind of things that uh, the right was being blasted for, you know, supporting segregation, uh, 
this type of stuff. And so Harry Jaffa decided that, well, you know what we need to do? We need to say equality is conservative. And what we're going to do by that is we're going to make a boogeyman. And that boogeyman is going to be John C. Calhoun. Because if we can make John C. Calhoun the bad guy, and we can say he's not one of us, he's just uh, a Democrat. No, Jaffa didn't do that. But of course, Republicans have done that since. He's just, he is the progenitor of the other side. They are the Calhounites. We're not. You see, Russell Kirk included John C. Calhoun in his conservative mind. Calhoun was a conservative. Everyone recognized that. Calhoun himself called himself a conservative. But he's not really. He's a leftist. He's a moral relativist. He's a historicist. I mean, this is what you get out of this. right? And so Jaffa has had a tremendous impact on the way conservatives think about American history. And when conservatives have adopted the positions of the left, you're done. Now, people pointed out this was going to happen. R.L. Dabney said this was happening in the 18, late 1800s. He said this was going on. American conservatives have just adopted the discarded revolutionary principles of the other side, where they've already moved on. That's what American conservatives have become. And Harry Jaffa did the exact same thing. He did the exact same thing. So this is the real danger. We don't really have a conservative uh, tradition in America in the 20th century if you listen to Harry Jaffa. We don't really have a conservative tradition in America at all if you listen to Harry Jaffa. We have Lewis Hartz's leftist American tradition that's just become kind of conservative because, well, conservatives don't go as far as leftists. Well, that's not really a conservative tradition now, is it? But the important thing to note, and where all these people get hung up, of course, is Calhoun's positions on race. Which, by the way, in the 19th century, virtually all of the people in, Western, in the Western world believe the same thing. I mean, this was not unheard of. In fact, Elder's book on Calhoun talks about this. He says, look, when John C. Calhoun in the 1840s said that the United States is the white man's government, he wasn't saying anything that most people didn't already believe. That wasn't revolutionary in the 1840s. It didn't matter where you were, in the North, the South, the West. This is what you believed. So, uh, and, and we have to understand when Douglas was attacking Lincoln for accepting positions that were uh, you know, alien to what he thought were the foundings. When he, when he called Lincoln someone who believed in equality, and Lincoln spent a lot of time defending himself why? Against that charge. Why? Because he knew that the vast majority of Americans believed the exact same thing Douglas was saying, that they didn't believe any equality, racial equality or otherwise. This is the dominant position of America. So to run around trying to come up with you know, this, uh, this distorted vision of the American past is just a waste of time. But the real key to understanding Calhoun is not all that. You see, when we even talk about these things, it deflects from the importance of Calhoun. It deflects from the importance of the founding generation, all of whom had generally the same views as Calhoun had when it came to race, even if they didn't believe in slavery. I mean, they, even if they thought slavery should end, they all had these, these same views. When we spend our time defending the founders against these particular positions, or Calhoun or take your pick of any conservative, what you have just done is conceded the field to the left. These things are really irrelevant in, in why these men are important. 
And so you've you've taken they they've actually gained a foothold and taken power over your perception by making you feel guilty about something that you had no control over. And by saying, well, if they have these views and you can't listen to them about anything else, why would they want that? Why do they ignore it in their own heroes, like John Muir? Why do they ignore it in the founder of the Sierra Club, who said some really racist things after the war was over? Why do they ignore it in him? But then they, they talk about it constantly with John C. Calhoun. Well, we all know the answer to that. Because Muir has positions and uh, advocates things they want. So they can overlook those things. But they can't overlook them on the people that they don't like. Because their positions are alien to their agenda. See, that's the whole point. Now, the piece I'm going to talk about today is written by John Grove. And he makes some really strong points here. This piece was written six years ago. And in fact... In episode 101 of the Brian McClanahan Show, I talked about the John Daniel Davison piece at the Federalist that Grove is also attacking here. And this is from 2017. But I wanted to concentrate on this piece. Somebody had sent it to me on social media because there's some really interesting things that Grove says about Calhoun. Now, John Grove is a real Calhoun scholar. He's written a, a good book on Calhoun. It's a, uh, John C. Calhoun and Republicanism. I can't remember the title exactly, but John Grove... It's about Calhoun's republicanism with a lowercase r. It's a really good intellectual history of John C. Calhoun. Uh, and Grove uh, is affiliated with Law and Liberty now, um, which they publish some good stuff, some stuff I don't like sometimes. But, I mean, generally it's a decent website to go to uh, for some good content at times. Uh, so Law and Liberty is something you should be checking out. It's Liberty Fund's website. And Liberty Fund, for a long time, did some really interesting stuff with Calhoun. They published a book by Ross Lentz. That was good. It was a collection of Calhoun's works. Liberty Fund used to do some really good stuff on the Southern tradition. John Taylor of Caroline. They have some, some good things. Richard Weaver. Uh, not so much in the last, uh, last 20 years, or maybe a little less. But uh, for a while, they were certainly very good, particularly in the 90s on, uh, on the South. Uh, St. George Tucker, uh, the Clyde Wilson uh, introduction to that uh, collection. So some pretty good stuff. But uh, let me get into this Grove piece because I find it very fascinating. And the title is False Idols, Looking at America's Founders with a Clear Eye. He says, increasingly, America's past is becoming a lightning rod for contemporary ideological struggles. This has always been the case, and I've said this on the show before. When you go back and you start looking at even, I mean, take your pick of a time period, right? We go back to the early 19th century. You go back to Mercy Otis Warren and her history of the United States and what it was doing. It was, an, it was attacking Federalists. That was the whole point. It was a history war. You go back to the American War for Independence as a history war. It's an understanding of the past. That's what they're, that's what they're battling over, the rights of Englishmen. What can and cannot the government do based on tradition, based on custom, based on precedent? You see, the important thing about the American, the Anglo-American tradition, is it's heavy on a legal and political tradition. It's heavy on custom and precedent. You have to understand where we were to understand where we're going. And the Western world generally is like that. You know, look at the Romans, you look at the Greeks. This is something they did a lot of, a historical consciousness. Heavy on custom and precedent. Now, what the left has done ingeniously is 
make it to where people don't want, want to feel shame about a past instead of pride for it. Right? I mean, well, this is you have to feel shame about these things. You can't you can't enjoy. Uh, you can't come up with anything good about these people because they had bad views on things the left wants you to think are bad views. That's the problem. Right? Instead of just saying, well, these people were great. These are great men. Yeah, they had some views that we don't think are great in the 21st century, but so what? Is anybody else coming up with this stuff today? Is anybody else doing things that these men did? No. I just saw a clip of Nancy Pelosi talking about how Joe Biden is the heir of the founders. It's just so stupid. But this is this is where we are. I mean, it, there's nobody today that uh, is the equal of that generation of men. And this is not hero worship. It's just looking at what they did and how they did it. And Grove kind of gets into that here. He says, Colleges, highways, and Democratic Party fundraising dinners are being renamed. Monuments destroyed or desecrated. And a general suspicion seems to be growing of the value of anything emanating from America's first century, soiled as it is with the stains of racism and slavery. This trend is a cause for concern among conservatives who value some elements of America's past, especially as conservatives are increasingly being linked by their ideological opponents to these less admirable features of America's history. Conservatives ought, therefore, to respond to such historical controversies with delicacy and tact if they are to separate themselves from the unsavory parts of our history while still preserving what is good in it. And so he's saying, look, we've got these things, and all the left is going to do is say, well, if you like Calhoun, you're a racist. If you think the Confederate monument should stay up, you're a racist. This is what they do. You see, there's, there's no... There's no intellectual substance to this. It's just a simple accusation. It's beating someone over the head with the book, the R book, right? And then so if once you do that, once you make these charges, well, then it doesn't matter. But that's not really an argument. In fact, it's a fallacy of logic. It's fa it fails logic 101. You're not addressing the arguments. You're not addressing any of it. And this is why the left has tried to spend some time now writing books about Confederate monuments, for example, about how they're all built for all these nefarious reasons, which their, their research and their evidence is so shoddy, they have to keep defending it over and over again because they know there's really no substance to it. You see, back in the 70s and 80s, there were books written about these things when historians actually were real historians and not activists, and they didn't come to any of these conclusions. And these were people on the left, by the way. These aren't pro-Southern or you know, conservatives. These were people that were mainstream academics who were just writing about these things and said, well, this is why they were done. But no, no, no. Uh, Gaines Foster book, um, I think it was Ghosts of the Confederacy. This was one of the early ones. Uh, but it's, you know, it you can't write those kind of books anymore. You have to write the, the idiotic nonsense coming from the modern mainstream academics. So Grove says, a recent essay by John Daniel Davidson on the Federalist Forever demonstrates the worst possible response to the situation. When charged with being the ideological descendants of racists and bigots, Mr. Davidson suggests that conservatives ought to employ the classic retort of the 10-year-old. I know you are, but what am I? Rather than offer a mature and nuanced defense of America's past, they ought merely to turn the crude historical assaults back on their enemies 
To that end, he, compl- he claims the, that contemporary progressives, not conservatives, are actually the intellectual heirs of malicious Southerners and slaveholders. I know you are, but see, this is the, well, all these people are Democrats. You see, they're just Democrats. This is the, this is the Scalise argument and why he won't support defunding the naming commission, or the renaming commission really is what it is. Why he won't do it, because those are just Democrats, you see. This is where you get uh, the Schweikert nonsense on social media. And it's Patriot's History of the United States, where everything is about Democrats. It's intellectually dishonest. It's bad history. And frankly, it's, it's uh, damaging to American conservatism. Because if you're going to say that you're going to be a 19th century Republican, then you might as well just say you're a leftist. Because that's what you, that's what you become. The centerpiece of Mr. Davidson's assessment is his use of John C. Calhoun as the universal boogeyman. Again, something that the right has started to do. This is 2017. But you started seeing it before this point. And he talks about where this comes from, which is the best part of this whole piece. Mr. Davidson tells us that Calhoun, known by those who have never studied him as a mere mouthpiece for the Southern slave interest, was the godfather of progressivism. He rejected Lockean natural rights in favor of science, Mr. Davidson is not particularly specific about the content of this science, but he can be forgiven since it's nowhere to be found in Calhoun's writings either, and this is true. Calhoun didn't talk about this stuff. And he saw history and circumstance as essential components of any calculation of political justice. Progressives also value social justice and believe that political justice is susceptible to changes based on circumstance. Therefore, Calhoun was actually a progressive, and it is progressives who ought to be apologizing for their neo-Confederate ideology. And again, I talked about this piece in, in uh, back on episode 101, if you want to go find it. It's on YouTube. It's on, you can do a search on Spotify for podcasters, any of that. Episode 101, back in uh, August of 2017. In assessing Calhoun, Mr. Davidson acknowledges his debt to the late Harry Jaffa. And indeed, since everything he says about Calhoun comes unfiltered from Jaffa's A New Birth of Freedom, one might be forgiving for wondering if Mr. Davidson himself has ever read a word of Calhoun's writings and speeches. Well, of course he hasn't. Nobody does. Nobody goes and reads Calhoun. It's why I have my reading John C. Calhoun class at McLeanahan Academy. Nobody does this stuff. You should. You should go buy that class. It's why nobody does any of this stuff. Because if you actually had to go out and do the work, and research John C. Calhoun, you would come up with an entirely different position on the man. Again, if you don't know, my mentor in graduate school is the editor of the John C. Calhoun papers. If you never read Calhoun, you fall victim to every single bad thing that's ever been said about the man because you're just going to get cherry-picked quotes. You're going to get this kind of distorted vision of what Calhoun was and wasn't. These tenuous... Uh, attachments to you know different 19th century philosophers and historicists and all kinds of things. Again, accusations made after the war was over when Calhoun was long dead. Some of this stuff. I mean that's that's where that's where all these things are just complete bunk. It would be fair, be, be far too tedious to correct every one of Jaffa's errors and misrepresentations that Mr. Davison repeats. 
but a few are too egregious to overlook, as they serve to completely distort one of America's greatest conservative thinkers. Again, this is why John Grove is good, because he's actually publicly saying that Calhoun is one of America's greatest conservative thinkers. And, you know, until the 1960s, everyone recognized this. It really started to change with the West Coast Straussians, the neoconservatives, all of these people that uh, wanted to essentially adopt Thad Stevens as the progenitor of American conservatism or Abraham Lincoln. You see? Now, of course, picking Lincoln, you would think, is a, is a wise political move. Everybody loves Lincoln. Lincoln saved the Union. Lincoln did all these great things. So he's a conservative. The left knows this is garbage. They run with Lincoln, too. But they know it's garbage. You know, I just talked about a, a piece a little while ago, a couple of weeks ago, by Miles Smith at, at uh, Hillsdale College where he says, you know, we need to follow Lincolnian nationalism. This is what we need. He's a conservative. It's garbage. You don't. Lincoln wasn't conservative at all. So Grove says, first is the relationship between Calhoun's thought and science. In A New Birth of Freedom, Jaffa claimed that Calhoun crafted a political theory based on modern science, which sought to conquer nature by manipulating human tendencies that can be observed through social science. Calhoun, however, compared his political theory to a very different kind of science, astronomy. The study does not allow the scientists to conquer or manipulate nature. Instead, as Calhoun himself described it, astronomy, quote, displays to our admiration the system of the universe. Similarly, Calhoun's science of politics sought to display to our admiration the social nature of man and all the human potential that emanates from, the nature, from that nature when fulfilled in a well-developed civil society. Now, Calhoun was a traditionalist. Calhoun called himself a conservative. What he was trying to do, though, in understanding human nature was tweak the American system to meet the challenges that human nature presents. He understood man. This is not science. He's looking at the way people operate. And one of the most important things, of course, is the tyranny of the majority, right? The 50 plus 1% is why he wanted to talk about what majorities, numerical majorities do. Because he understood the pack mentality of things. And he understood power. And he understood how people clamored for power. And they would hide behind different things until they got it. And then they wouldn't care. That's understanding human nature. He's trying to check power. Perhaps the most ridiculous claim, Grove says, in the essay is that Calhoun's general philosophy of government was one that promoted an active, pervasive government that does that doles out benefits, imposes vast regulations, and dictates our affairs based on scientific principles. Grove says few statements could better demonstrate a complete ignorance of Calhoun's writings than this. The concept of Calhoun's concurrent majority theory was based on the observation that all governments have a natural inclination to expand their scope beyond their rightful limits. This is true. All governments do this. So what you need to do is strictly limit them by having supermajorities to get anything done. If there ever is a, uh, a bill or something that everybody thinks would benefit, right? I mean, it's the vast majority of people thinks it would benefit. It'll get passed. Everything else, though, is going to die on the floor, which is where it should 
Because when you get to these razor-thin majorities, you get a lot of bad legislation. That there is a constant incentive for those who govern to misuse their power to advance their own interests. Corruption. He's, he's talking about corruption. The purpose of government is to preserve and perfect the entire society over which it governs. And it can only accomplish that task if its role is limited by the elements which make up that society. Grove said it is pure fantasy to see in Calhoun's thought any seed of a bloated administrative state. Absolutely. This is 100% true. Calhoun would not have supported that at all. Finally, Joffa and Mr. Davidson claimed that Calhoun's theory of government was based on racial pseudoscience. That would not seem problematic to someone unfamiliar with Calhoun's writings. After all, he was portrayed today as a theorist of white supremacy and slavery. But anyone examining Calhoun's writings looking for a systemic theory of racism will be sorely disappointed. True. Now, I've talked about this many times. Calhoun undeniably reflected the racial attitudes of his time and place, and it is truly tragic that such an intelligent and, in other respects, virtuous statesman was so misguided and limited by America's most prominent sin. Calhoun's general theory of politics, however, had no racial component whatsoever. True. His general theory of politics. Now, people, well, what about the, what about the, the well, no, 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 the positive good speech, that's all John C. Calhoun. I've talked about that speech on this show before, and of course I, I cover it in reading John C. Calhoun, but Calhoun says in that speech, look, if we all think slavery is a moral evil, it needs to end right now. We have the power to do it in Congress. We can do it because we pass other unconstitutional legislation. Why can't we pass that one? We could do it right now, but nobody's willing to do that. And so he's defending it as it is, in society as it is. This wasn't based on a pseudoscience or anything else. He didn't do any of that. His arguments were based on things as they were. Not on some theory. Now we can say that's wrong today. But at the time, this is what he's doing. It's not, it's not some type of pseudoscience that you would see in other individuals in the 19th century. Calhoun didn't do that. His greatest work, The Disquisition on Government, laid out in the elementary principles of free government. Slavery and race are nowhere to be found. 100% accurate. In fact, in some key respects, the practical arguments he made about slavery unconsciously contradicted the principles found in that work. In his speeches on slavery and abolition, his racial attitudes emerged as completely customary and inherited. This is also true. It's based on the society in which he lived. He lived in 19th century South Carolina, which had traditionally passed down these things, right? So this is customary and inherited. For a man of supreme intelligence, he seemed completely uninterested in intellectually justifying his racial prejudices. Looking back, Calhoun's racial attitudes were deplorable, but he never peddled racial pseudoscience, nor was he a theorist of white supremacy. As such, those who share Calhoun's conservatism or his belief in the principles of concurrent majorities need not defend themselves from Calhoun's vices any more than celebrants of the Declaration, like Jaffa and Mr. Davison, need to defend themselves from Jefferson's slave-owning. True. Again, what, what Grove is saying here, at least 
indirectly is that to play this game is to play right into the hands of the other side. You're playing on their field by their rules. Don't do it. Don't do it. It's unnecessary. More is at stake, however, Mr. Davidson's distortion than the reputation of Calhoun. A main premise of Mr. Davidson's essay is that someone who claimed to be a conservative, Calhoun, actually espoused the principles of progressive liberalism. Perhaps we have to pause, however, to compare Calhoun and Mr. Davidson as conservatives. I love this part of this, of this essay. This is really where he gets to some good stuff. One recognized that majorities were not immune from the temp temptation to misuse power. The other places scare quotes around tyranny of the majority. One insisted that political justice and rights could not be boiled down to mathematical calculations, while the other applauds Earl Warren and William Brennan's mathematical democracy as the cornerstone of our Constitution. One recognized that political right draws its meaning from history and circumstance. The other claims that only abstract theories of liberté and égalité can justify a political regime. How did American conservatives reach a point at which the former beliefs are considered progressive and the latter conservative? If conservatives no longer recognize history, tradition, and restraints on majorities of their principles, and instead embrace abstract liberty, equality, and majoritarianism, then an intellectual anarchy surely must have been loose, loosened on American conservatism. Centers are not holding, falcons are not hearing, falconeers. Yes. So what he's done there is a very nice comparison. Davidson is pushing a French revolutionary style, or you could even say... Uh, 18th century liberalism, but I would say more accurately, a 19th century liberalism, 19th century kind of French Revolution into Lincolnian or or Republican Party liberalism that has now become conservative. So Davidson is not really a conservative at all. One is, one isn't. He says it was none other than Harry Jaffa who unleashed that anarchy on conservatism in the mid-20th century. The story of Jaffa's impact on American conservatism has been told many times, and it need not be recounted again in great detail. But Mr. Davidson's puerile assessment of America's past shows the consequences of Jaffa's new ideological conservatism. Now that it has been absorbed by rank-and-file conservatives for over a generation, we can see just how destructive it can be to a genuine conservative outlook. Jaffa's interpretation of the founding in the academic arena is simply incorrect. In the political arena, it threatens to undermine all forms of conservatism. A beautiful paragraph. 100% correct. And we most people miss this because they just go out and listen to Sean Hannity or Glenn Beck or whatever. They miss this. They don't really get down into the weeds and understand where this stuff is coming from. And they think it has political impact. But what it's really doing is threatening to undermine all forms of conservatism because it's really not conservative. It's 19th century liberalism. Jaffa's great project was to build a kind of conservatism on the principle of liberalism. He was most successful in convincing conservatives that they did not accept universal abstract principles observed through reason as the foundation of government. They were embracing moral relativism. As such, the particularism which defined conservative thought must be abandoned in favor of a specific set of universal principles, which Jaffa found in the Declaration of Independence and Lincoln's refounding. 
Traditional conservatives, of course, were not embracing relativism. Following Burke, they believed that long-established political and social orders are the framework which give any individual the ability to perceive, ever so dimly, the eternal and divine justice which is beyond the capacity of any human to fully comprehend. Again, a beautiful statement. Grove is 100% correct about all of this. Now, uh, Jaffa, this is what I said at the beginning, has been the most destructive force in real American conservatism. And he's pointing out why. Because what you have to do is accept idealism. The idea of America. It's Lincoln's proposition nation. He doesn't call it that, but that's exactly what this is. Abstract justice is always reflected and refracted in innumerable ways within a specific context before it can be comprehended by the human mind. Political and social institutions, therefore, ought to be conserved, not because they are perfectly true and right, but because their destruction would lead to political and moral anarchy. Jaffa, however, like progressive liberals, argued that institutions, however old and venerable, can be justified only through a direct comparison to abstract theories of liberty and equality. These ideas can succinctly be labeled the American idea or the proposition nation. I mean, you have to go back to Lincoln. One of the things that we don't often think about in the 20th century when you get to World War II and, of course, the 1960s is they're really part and parcel of the same thing. Uh, and there's, there's a reason why lefties love both things, because there's a crusade. There's a moral crusade in both efforts. Now, when Americans went off to war in 1941, they weren't, consi- they weren't thinking about a moral crusade. Just as when they went off to war in 1861 from the United States into the South, they weren't thinking about a moral crusade. But that war became that, so it has this moral crusade element to it. They were just defending themselves from a Japanese attack, which they thought was a sneak attack, which, of course, if you read Charles Tansel's Back Door to War, you know that's probably not the case. But regardless, they believed that they were going to defend America from an attack. Just, I mean, you could say the same thing. People marching off from New York or Pennsylvania uh, in 1861 thought the United States had been attacked by the South at Fort Sumter. So we have to defend the United States, defend the Union, defend the founding, whatever it is. The moral crusade wasn't there, but the moral crusade gets there near the end of the war. And that's what we focus on all the time. And of course, that would carry itself forward into domestic politics. There's a moral crusade that comes out of that. We don't often see these things. I've, had a, I've done a podcast on this too, how World War II screwed up America. Because it's there. Jaffa's reorientation of American conservatism has done considerable damage to the ability of conservatives to assess intelligently and appreciate America's history. True. It has created a kind of founding myth, which has in turn caused a tendency toward hero worship among conservatives. There is an undeniable arrogance in the belief that America's founders were the first and perhaps only in history to have founded their nation on true principles. America's laws did not arise like those of every other nation through history compromise and gradual development, but were handed down as if it were from the gods. One can see this in Jaffa's attack on Calhoun's belief that constitutions are the result of the careful, prudent deliberation of wise and valuable statesmen, making practical calculations about the situation before them. Absolutely true, right? I mean, 
you look at the, the Birkin book, Almost a Miracle. I mean, this is almost a miracle. It's like, it's God-given. There's also the book Plain Honest Men by Beeman. This is actually not a bad popular history of the Philadelphia Convention because he, he kind of he goes against this. And he's going against it because he thinks he's in some ways attacking American conservatives. But what he's really doing is pointing out that the Constitution was a mess. The Constitution was a mess. The ratification, there was a consensus in ratification that was based on custom and precedent and tradition more than anything else. It wasn't about ideology. They were persuaded to support it because it maintained the federal republic of sovereign states as under the articles with certain powers granted to the center that weren't there before. That's why it was adopted. That's why it was ratified. Not because of some ideology. Not because of you know God breathed and this thing was there. The Constitution was a mess. And Madison's tinkerings, his innovations, didn't really make it anywhere. Joffa and Mr. Davidson presented this view of constitutionalism as irrational and mindless. Only those who, like the capitalized founding fathers, had access to abstract truth can create a legitimate constitution founded on the solid rock of reason. Of course, that flies in the face of John Dickinson. Reason may mislead us. The entire Constitution was an attack on reason. This ideological view of American history also gives rise to a more general moral illiteracy among conservatives, which rivals that of statue-demolishing liberals. Any personal vice or wrong-headed principle in our heroes threatens to demolish the founding myth. As such, rather than tactfully recognizing the failings and limitations of our founders, Conservatives have developed a tendency to deny that they ever possessed these faults. Furious defenders are mounted to show that all the founders were virtually anti-slavery, possessed no limited or parochial views, and were never influenced by personal advantage. Furthermore, anyone who did have such tendencies must be dismissed as unimportant to the American idea, whatever their contribution to American life may have been. What makes a figure virtuous by this view is the conformity of a person's actions to the true American faith. America's past, therefore, is a simple morality tale in which there are clearly discernible heroes who reflect purity of motives as evidenced by their complete devotion to Lockean natural rights and villains who undermine those principles in the name of relativism, selfishness, and immorality. Again, this is also true in how this is done. Conservatives may be particularly tempted to embrace this concept of America as an idea when responding to the racial reactionary elements of today's ideological fringe. Again, this is the point. This is why Jaffa really did it. We just He never said this, but this is why he did it. We're coming out of the civil rights era when conservatives have been just beaten down as being these evil people. So he says, you know what? Equality is conservative. You're, you're, all you civil rights people, you're really just conservatives. Martin Luther King's a conservative. In reality, you're just advocating the founding principles, which are conservative. What he just did unknowingly is just undermine all of American conservatism. As such groups celebrate with growing confidence the worst tendencies of American history, what better way for conservatives to distance themselves from such ugliness 
while still salvaging our past then by removing as un-American those figures who seem most problematic. While such a solution may seem easy, it is both intellectually dishonest and disastrous for conservatives. As poetic as the American idea may seem, one cannot simply, one cannot avoid the simple fact that a polity is composed of the people who make it up, and it must bear the stains of their evils along with the luster of their achievements. Treating racism as un-American, tumor on an otherwise pristine body truly understates the problem. The greatest tragedy of America's past is that racism was present not only in its worst villains, but also in some of its greatest leaders, thinkers, and public figures. It cannot be cured by surgically removing a specific set of villains. This historical reality cannot be hidden behind glimmering visions of the American idea. Those who seek to distort all of America's history, traditions, and institutions will expose this truth and utilize it to the advantage of their revolutionary programs. This is true. I mean, this is what I've said. What he's just pointed out is saying, well, look, if you try to do this, if you try to say there's good guys and bad guys, the left's going to figure this out, and they're going to they're gonna give it back to you. And he gives you an example. He says, Drew Gilpin Faust's recent suggestion that the right to free association is little more than a dog whistle for bigotry and exclusion because it was utilized by Southern resistance to school desegregation. Almost anything emanating from deep thought, deep, um, from deep enough in America's past, can be connected to racism in such matter, and this fact will be exploited. Only a moral discretion capable of demonstrating how virtue and vice live together in every society, and indeed, in every individual, can protect what is good in America's history, traditions, and institutions from such an attack. Right, so I mean, if you, well... It's going to be exploited by the left. Like, well, everything goes back to this. Everything goes back to this. And so instead of saying, well, we have good... These guys are just Democrats. These guys are the bad guys. These are Southerners. They're just bad guys. They're just Democrats. I mean, they're just you. I know you are, but what am I? That's the point. If you're going to play that game, you're going to lose. Instead of saying, well, sure, there was certainly people doing this for nefarious reasons. But that's not everything to it, is it? That's not everything that goes along with this, is it? So, uh, Grove concludes a couple of paragraphs here, which I find really good. He says, A more genuine conservatism, unlike Jaffa's innovations and progressive liberalism, can provide that discretion by more truthfully and subtly assessing America's past. By rejecting abstract ideology, conservatives stress the importance of learning the lessons that history teaches us. Rather than using history to prove our points, our ideological commitments demand. Conservatives do not fight to preserve our institutions because they are perfect, because they were created by pure godlike founders, or because they reflect the one true political faith. They preserve them because they have promoted a relatively free and steady political order for hundreds of years and have served as a stable framework for our understanding of liberty, rights, and justice. Like all constitutional structures, they are the product of compromise and conciliation among diverse groups with differing ideas and motivations. The men and women who have shaped them possess virtues and vices, and their vices do not nullify their virtues. To the extent that conservatives reject this humbler and more moderate assessment of the past, they will find themselves incapable of adequately defending the historical figures, peoples, and institutions which they appreciate and, and memorialize as each comes under assault. True. So, if you can't show the complexity of things and just say, so what? I mean, basically what he's arguing here, and you boil this down, is, so what? Yeah, they had some things that were incorrect, but let's talk about the things that 
are really important for these men and understand who they were. They're complex men, men of their times. They had ideas. They had positions that we don't celebrate today. But what about the good that they did say? What about the things that they did say that are applicable till today? You can't just cut them out. And this is what the right is doing as well. It's what the left and the right are doing now. He's saying you can't do that. He says, the inconvenient truth is that America, like all other nations, is the product of both selfishness and self, selflessness and selfishness, virtue and vice, wisdom and foolishness. If we reject the important historical figures who possess the latter along with the former qualities, we must ultimately reject them all. That's the point of the left. This is what they really want to do. Unless, of course, it's their guy. But that even is, they're starting to do some of that themselves. They will purge themselves, but... The, the non-purists among them. You see, when you get an ideology, if you're not pure enough, you're going to be purged, ultimately. Given this reality, conservatives cannot attempt to turn liberal attacks around on their adversaries. They cannot resort to using American history for the purpose of intellectually vacuous name-calling. They must approach history in a more nuanced and truthful way. It won't matter that one puts Calhoun in the villain category if Jefferson still stands among the heroes. The statues of Calhoun fall. The statues of the Declaration's author will eventually fall as well. Well, they have. <laughs> I mean, this is 2017, remember. This is being written six years ago. What's happened in six years? In many ways because of conservatives. Because they were uh, toast in their defense of anything that was outside of Republicans. It's Steve Scalise. It's Victor Davis Hanson. This is the problem. At this point, conservatives will need to worry about the preservation of more than just symbols, but also of laws, traditions, and treasured institutions. Calhoun's greatest contribution to American political thought was his observance, observation that a people cannot be adequately represented simply through majority rule elections. A society is not a mere collection of individuals. It is a unique historical creation composed of a variety of groups and interests which often clash, but which nevertheless have moral obligations to each other. A government actuated by the whole, not just a part, of society will preserve and protect that society by encouraging civil harmony, conciliation, and justice. This is the whole concurrent majority. It's composed of the whole, not just a part, not just 50 plus 1%. His theory is not relevant to contemporary politics. It is also undeniably conservative in its character. Does this mean that conservatism is undeniably, indelibly stained by Calhoun's defense of slavery? Certainly not. All ideas, like all political institutions, have been crafted by flawed individuals. We cannot reject and debase the positive contributions, virtues, ideas, and examples of figures who had moral failings, even serious ones. A subtle and nuanced view of history would allow us to memorialize such elements of our past without a false pretension that vice did not exist alongside virtue. Let us approach our history as becomes thoughtful citizens, learning its lessons rather than figuring to our, a bed of our favorite ideology. So this is just a great essay, and, uh, and again, six years old, but still worth our time to read because he's pointing out the problems of the Straussian right, the neoconservative right, how they're really just liberals. That paragraph where he got into this, and he said, here's Calhoun and here's Davison. Who's real conservative? That's a great part. And, of course, taking down Jaffa is also worthwhile, too, but... You can't have conserv can't have American conservatism without Calhoun, and I think that's something that we forget. 
uh, because of the way that Jaffa and the West Coast Straussians, people like Michael Anton, and this is where the Claremont Institute and all that is so dangerous because that's where everybody goes now, the Claremont Institute. It's a really dangerous influence on American conservatism because we're not conserving anything at that point. We're just conserving a leftist revolution that they think should stop at some point, but that will certainly still be ongoing. All right. See you tomorrow on the Brian McClanahan Show. See you then.